0: 14, Luke chapter 14. And I did a Google search this past week and and, and to come up with or to find out what are some of the most expensive things in the world. The most expensive things. Now, first on the list... And I went to a lot of different sites to find this to make sure it was accurate. It's called the Yacht History Supreme. It's a yacht. It was designed by world-famous British designer Stuart Hughes. I have no idea who he is, but he's world-famous, I guess, for something. It's a 100-foot yacht. It sold for $4.5 billion to a Malaysian businessman. A $4.5 billion yacht. What about the world's most expensive house? I've been to South Asia many times, but I've never been to this place. It's called Antilia. It's in Mumbai, India. It's owned by Asia's richest billionaire. It's 27 stories, has 3 helipads. It has parking spaces for 168 cars. It's got a ballroom. It's got a nine high-speed elevators. It's got a 50-seat theater, and it's designed to survive an earthquake of a magnitude of 8.0. How much does this house cost? $2 billion. What about the world's most expensive car? WeatherTech founder and CEO David McNeil in 2018 paid $70 million for a 1963 Ferrari 250 GTO. If you know anything about cars, there were only 39 of those built, and so they're very rare Ferraris. $70 million. What about the world's most expensive piece of jewelry? It's called the Graft Diamond Hallucination Watch. It's a watch. It's adorned with 110 carats of the world's rarest colored diamonds. It sold for $55 million in 2014, a $55 million watch. What about the world's most expensive painting? The famous French artist, Paul Gauguin, spent time in the South Pacific. A lot of his paintings are of Polynesian women. There's this one painting called, When Will You Marry? In 2015, it sold for $300 million, the most expensive piece of art sold in recent history. Now, I've saved the best for last. What's the most expensive thing in the world? It's not on this planet. It's the International Space Station. It's the most expensive thing ever created on planet Earth that's not in planet Earth. It's estimated to be at $150 billion. Now, why do I bring up the world's most expensive things? Now, it's no surprise to you I'm not a billionaire, so I don't know about these types of things, but I, I wonder if these people sat down and calculated the cost of what it would cost them. Or maybe people are just so filthy rich it doesn't matter how much it costs. Just tell me the price and I'll, I'll pay for it. But that's normal type of people, when you make a major purchase, like when you go to buy a house or you go to buy a car or you make a major purchase, normally you sit down and you run the numbers. Can we afford this? You calculate the cost. Is this something we can afford? Can I afford the monthly payments? I'm not going to just jump into making a rash purchasing decision. You sit down and you think about it before you make such a big purchase. Jesus, in our passage of scripture before us, tells us to sit down and calculate the cost of what it means to follow him. What's the cost of following Jesus? Well, last week, if you were here, you remember Jesus told a parable, and it was about three lame excuses. There was a guy that said, I was invited to the banquet, I'm not going to come because I got to go check out the property I bought. Number two, the lame excuse was I got to go check out the five oxen that I bought. And the third guy's lame excuse was I just got married. And so these three excuses represent something greater. The three biggest issues in our lives, money and possessions, our job, and marriage and family. The three big ticket items that absorb our lives. And these three excuses are directly related to the three commands that Jesus gives in calling us to follow him. So let's read together in Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 25. Luke 14, verse 25. And this is not new material in Luke. He actually addressed this back in chapter 9. So he's addressing it again here in chapter 14, just in a little bit different detail with a couple of parables. But it's the same concept. So here we go. Now great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build, but was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000, and if not, The scene shifted from the Pharisee's house. And now the context is, there in verse 25, great crowds were accompanying him. This is an exciting time for Jesus. He's gathered great crowds. They're excited to follow this miracle worker. He's a great teacher. He really stands up to the religious leaders. They're caught up in the frenzy of following Jesus, but they do not know where he's going or who he is. Where's Jesus headed? To Jerusalem to go to the cross. So they're caught up in the moment here. They're caught up in the frenzy, the excitement, the novelty. And Jesus stops them dead in their tracks and turns to them and gives three radical conditions for following him radical conditions. And these statements are very emphatic where Jesus says, you cannot be my disciple if you don't do these things. You cannot be my disciple. So what are these three conditions, these radical conditions? Well, first, Jesus says we have to put all other human relationships under his supreme authority. He is to be above all other human relationships. Now, notice what he says there in verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, is Jesus literally telling us here to hate our family? No, We've got to balance Scripture with Scripture. Jesus is not saying, hate your family, detest the people that are in your life. He's he's using exaggerated language. He's speaking in hyperbole. Basically, what Jesus is saying is, if there's any human relationship that takes the place of me, it's out of balance. I, Jesus, am to be supreme, to be superior, to be preeminent, even above your own life, even above your own spouse, your children. No human relationship as intimate and great as it is, is to take precedence over me. I am to be supreme. That's basically what he's saying there. Not literally that we are to hate our own family members. It's exaggerated language. The second command that Jesus issues, and you see it there in verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Bear your cross. Now, in our culture, we use language like, I've got a cross to bear. I've got my cross to bear. Like it's an inconvenience, a minor inconvenience or a distraction. But back in that culture, the cross was a symbol of repugnance, a symbol of shame. For the Jewish mind, the cross meant that you were condemned by God. God had forsaken you. To the Gentile, the cross was reserved for criminals and for uh, people that went against the government, just the worst of society. And so it would be like in our culture today wearing a necklace of an electric chair around your neck. To take up your cross means that you renounce any reliance upon yourself, any sufficiency you have in yourself, you admit your weakness, you basically say, I'm signing up for a life of suffering like Jesus. Not that you die on the cross for your own sins, that's not what he's talking about, but you're saying, I'm going to identify with the path of Jesus, and the path of Jesus is persecution, trials, suffering, that's what I'm signing up for. And Jesus said this in John 15, 18-20. He told us, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours they persecuted Jesus, they will persecute us. they hated Jesus, they will hate us. That's what we're signing up for. 2 Timothy 3.12 Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not may be persecuted, but will be persecuted. And then 1 Peter 4.16 If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Put all human relationships below Jesus. He's to be preeminent. Be willing to take up a life of suffering and persecution and shame for the cross. And then the third condition Jesus gives, and it's actually down there in verse um, uh, 33. If anyone of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, is this salvation by poverty? (laughs) Give up everything that you have? Give up all worldly relations? These are radical commands. Hate your family. Take up your cross. Renounce everything that you have. Diedrich Bonhoeffer famously said this, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. In fact, every command of Jesus is a call to die with all our affections and lusts. Jesus is calling us to die to ourselves, to our wishes, to our agendas, to to put everything aside so that He is preeminent. He is supreme. He is superior. In other words... There is a tremendous cost to following Jesus. It requires repentance. It requires owning up to your sin, owning up to your pride, owning up to your selfishness, owning up to your self-sufficiency, saying that you are spiritually bankrupt and you have nothing to offer Jesus. Now, one thing we need to be very clear of here, and I need to be very careful in how I preach this this morning, I want to to be accurate with the text, but I want to be very careful. One thing that we need to be very careful for is what Jesus is preaching here is the law. He's preaching to us the law, not the gospel. These are demands made upon us that we can never fulfill. So let me ask you some questions here. How do you know if you've loved Jesus enough to follow him? How do you measure it? What if you haven't given up all other human relationships? And what happens if you sometimes put your wife above Jesus? Does that mean that you can't be a Christian? How do you know that you've borne your cross enough How do you know you've given up enough? How do you know that you've done enough to earn being a disciple of Jesus? Is the intensity and quantity of your cross bearing and giving up, does that merit your salvation? In other words, how do you know you've done enough of these things to enter into salvation? We oftentimes think that Jesus is preaching the gospel to us. Oftentimes in the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus actually preaches the law to us. The law are demands that He places upon us. Now, you have to ask the question, what's the purpose of the law? What's the purpose of these demands? We cannot fulfill them. The purpose of the law is to show us how hopeless and how helpless we truly are. It's to lead us to say, I'm not self-sufficient. I can't do this enough. I can't be intense enough. I can't be radical enough. I can't do this. All I can do is cast myself at the mercy of Christ alone to save me. So when Jesus forcefully issues these three conditions, they're not meant for us to sit there and say, I can do it. They're meant for us to say, this is radical, and I don't even know if I can do this. It's the cost of following Jesus. And Jesus knows the crowd. The crowds are following him. And so Jesus' point here is to turn to the crowds and say, Listen, I want you to sit down, and I want you to take some time, and I want you to calculate, think through what it is you're doing as you're following me to Jerusalem. And he gives two illustrations here to illustrate counting the cost, two parables. The first one, he talks about a man building a tower. He says in verse 28, For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? And that word count the cost is interesting. In the original language, it means to take out pebbles and, and kind of place pebbles around like calculating In the original language, it means to think through, to be methodical, to be very careful in deliberation. Now, this man, there's no pressure on him to build a tower. He decides, one day, I'm going to go out and build a tower. But the issue is, does he have enough money? Does he have enough resources to finish it? You can start well. And, hey, I'm going to build this tower, and it's going to be awesome, and it's going to be tall. And you get halfway through, and it's like, oh, man, I ran out of money. I can't finish it. And then it sits there, unfinished, and then people begin to come by and mock That's the guy that couldn't finish his tower. I remember many years ago, when we, when we first left Colorado Springs, um, on the north side of town, they were building this huge, like, apartment, not an apartment, it was a hotel complex, like this huge high-rise hotel. And, 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 and like, they got halfway done, and it never got finished. And never got finished. And every time we drive by, they're like, they never got that hotel finished. I think eventually, finally, it got finished. But I think like for five or six years, you had this huge hotel complex that was just sitting there empty. Because the the contractor or or the person that was doing that ran out of money from what I understand. It's the same thing. The guy started well, but he didn't think through, do I have enough money? Do I have enough resources? Do I have enough of what I need to actually finish the tower. I've got to think about this. The second analogy, a king. Now, this is a little bit different. The guy that builds a tower can one day decide, hey, I'm going to go build a tower. This is an issue where a king is being invaded by a larger army. He's got an army of 10,000, a king with 20,000 is coming at him. It's kind of like the situation between Ukraine and Russia. A larger nation inv- invades a smaller nation, and so there's got to be some thinking through of how we're going to do this. So you get your generals together and you say, can we really wage war here? Do we have the tanks? Maybe back then. Do we have the horses? Do we have the chariots? Can we wage war against a larger opponent? Let's sit down and notice what it says there. In verse 31, what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down and deliberate, deliberate, whether he's able with 10,000 to meet those who come against him with 20,000? to deliberate. Do we go to war with half the size or do we sign a peace treaty because we know we're going to lose? We need to think this through because it's a major decision that impacts the entire nation. What's Jesus' point in both these parables? Think things through very carefully before you start. Think things through very carefully before you decide to follow Jesus. Now what does it mean to think things through carefully? There is a word that our culture is allergic to. Do you know what that word is? Thinking. Our culture is driven by what we feel. People make decisions based upon what they feel. I feel it in my gut. I'm following my heart. I'm just going to go with my heart. We don't often talk about reasoning or thinking or deliberating or logically thinking things through. We're driven by our hearts. And Jesus knows the crowd here. He knows that the crowds are following him. They're probably driven by emotion. They're caught up in seeing the miracles. They're caught up in seeing the healings. And they love this this teacher, Jesus. But here's the point. Have they truly thought through what it is they're doing? Do they even know who he is, what his mission is, what, what he's all about? Now, people don't come to Jesus only through the heart. Now, there are emotions involved. I'm not saying that that you shut off your heart when you come to Christ. There's obviously the affections, there's obviously emotions, but you're a whole person. You come through thinking, you come through feeling, you come through choosing. But oftentimes, we tend to focus a lot on the feeling. Getting people wrapped up in the emotion, the frenzy. I can't tell you how many times as a youth pastor I'd see it at, at summer camp. Youth getting caught up in emotionalism, in the frenzy, psychological pressure being placed upon students to quote unquote make a decision for Christ. I remember the first couple of months that I was here at Emmanuel. It was over in the old building. And I preached a message. and It was a pretty evangelistic message. And I remember after the service, this young man comes up to the front. and He's excited. He's like, I want to give my life to Jesus. I'm so excited by what you said. You really, it was really convicting. And I said, that's great. Let me, um, you know, Let's talk about it, but I want to come visit you in your home. Let's talk about this further. He's like, okay, that's great. So later on that week, we set up a time for me to go visit him in his apartment. So I got to his apartment, and it was like a totally different guy. There was no enthusiasm, there was no excitement. He really didn't want me there, but I came and I sat down with him and I said you know well let's talk about you know what what was it that was said that really motivated you what, like what let's talk about sin let's talk about Jesus let's talk about repentance he shut down he didn't want anything to do with it and so what I did is I, I did something that maybe you wouldn't get good points in this in an evangelism class okay they'd probably fail you if you did this I didn't close the deal I didn't arm twist I didn't manipulate him on that Sunday morning to make a quick decision. Here's what I said to him. I said, you know what? You need to sit down and think about what I've said on Sunday morning, and you need to sit down and think about what I've said to you here in your house, and the best thing I can do for you is to leave and let you think about this. Think about what I've said, and if God has convicted you, call me back in a few days and tell me what you thought about. And I left. I never heard from him again. And you may think, well, Sean, you failed at evangelism because you you didn't get the decision. Well, at that time, I felt like he needed to really think things through as opposed to making a quick emotional decision. Because at the end of that worship service, he was all excited. But three days later, that excitement waned, and when I started talking to him about real issues of sin in his life, he didn't want anything to do with it. He didn't need me to emotionally whip him up into a frenzy. He needed to stop and think about it and spend some time thinking about what it means to be a Christian, to count the cost. You see, a lot of times we have an eager and overeager attempt to boost our numbers. We want big numbers. We want to see decisions for Christ. We want, to, we want to see all these people coming forward and making decisions for Christ, and we can result in getting a lot of amped up, excited decisions for Christ where people aren't even knowing what they're doing. When I was a youth pastor, we had this big event. This will date me. It was at the turn of the century, 2000, Y2K. It was called Youth Link 2000, and they linked us up all across the, the, the United States, different cities, and one of the cities was Denver, and so we took our youth there, and, and there was like big bands at back at the time like Rebecca St. James and Audio Adrenaline, and, and this is, again, dating me, and there was big-time speakers, and um, there was this, this former football player and he was, like, laying it on thick. He was, like, really preaching it hard. and He was emotional appeal. And, and, you know, every evangelistic trick in the book you could think of, he was, like, laying it on the kids. And so it came time for the altar call, and, like, half the, half the room went forward. It's so, like, like 500 kids went forward. And so he said, okay, I want you to go and find an adult leader on your way out. This was at a hotel. He's like, go find an adult leader on your way out, and I want you to talk to them. So us adult leaders were ready to receive these kids. So we were standing at the back, and these three came, and they were just weeping and weeping, and, and I came, and I, I took them into a little side area here, and I sat down, and I said, like, what's going on, guys? What's, what's going on? We don't know. Well, why did you guys come forward? Well, the guy told us to. Well, do you really know what you're doing? No, but he really, made us, he really made us sad. Do you have any idea, like, why you're coming forward? No, and they just sat there with a blank look on their face, like, I have no idea why I'm here, You have no idea why you're here. It was like the most awkward thing. Like, are you wanting to come to Christ? Do you have a crisis in your life? What's going on? We don't know. The guy was just really an emotional preacher, and so we went forward because he told us to go forward. So we see it all the time where people make quick decisions for Christ because they haven't thought through what it means to follow him. God gave people a mind, a brain, to sit down and think through. What is it really going to mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to count the cost? What is it going to cost you to come to Christ? It's going to cost you repentance. It's going to cost you giving up your sin. It's going to cost you stop relying upon yourself, admitting your spiritual bankruptcy, stop trusting in yourselves. It's signing up for a life of warfare. Why do you think Jesus gave an illustration of warfare here? You are signing up for a life of spiritual struggle where every day the three members of the unholy trinity, the world, the flesh, and the devil, are going to come at you at every turn and try to attack you. That's what you're signing up for. A life of repentance, a life of suffering, a life of warfare, a life of saying no to sin. So let's ask a question. If that's what you're signing up for and the cost is so high, then why would you take the risk to do it? Why would you sign up? Why why would you even say it's worth it? See, here's the good news of the gospel. The law shows us what we cannot do. The gospel gives us the ability to do what we cannot do through Jesus. The good news of the gospel is this. Everything that we need is not in ourselves but in Christ. Why do you come to Jesus? You come to Jesus because of who he is. Who is Jesus? He's the king. He's the son of the living God. He's the pearl of great price. He's the, the lamb of God that was slain for our sins. He's the alpha. He's the omega. He's the beginning. He's the end. He is the Lord. He's the master. He's the Messiah. He's the treasure. We, we come to Jesus because of who he is. This was read earlier in Matthew 13, through 46. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. That in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Jesus is the pearl of great price that you gain when you give up everything else. What are you getting? You're getting Jesus. And if that's not enough, I don't know what is. You come to Jesus because of who he is. But secondly, you come to Jesus because of what he's done. What has he done for you? Well, he's died on the cross as a substitute for your sins. He bore God's wrath in your place on the cross. He died the death that you should have died. And he rose again from the grave victoriously over sin and guilt and shame and the devil. And he is coming back again in power and glory. See, here's the distinction between law and gospel and why it's so important. Okay, law and gospel. In this passage, Jesus makes demands that are, that are crushing. Hate your family. Take up your cross. Renounce everything. Hate your own life. That's, that's, a, that's a crushing demand that's impossible for any of us to keep. And it's meant to be that way. We're meant to hear this and say, now, wait a minute. That sounds almost too impossible. Yes, it is impossible. You cannot even begin to fulfill these obligations. They crush you. But yet here's the good news. All you have to do (laughs) is trust in what Christ has done for you. You trust in Jesus. The only thing necessary for you to do is to trust in Jesus. Cast your mercy At Jesus. Believe that He is the Son of God. He died on the cross and He rose again. Because His righteousness becomes your righteousness. Romans 3, 21-22, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. You cannot renounce yourself enough, you cannot carry your cross enough, you cannot hate your family enough, you cannot take up your cross and deny yourself enough to become a follower of Jesus. Let me just put that to rest. You can't do enough. You can't be radical enough, you can't surrender enough, you can't do enough. But Jesus requires it. Okay, then what's the problem? If I can't do it and Jesus requires it, then then what do I do? You come at the end of your rope and say, Jesus, I can't. All I can do is trust in what you've done. And you trust in Jesus. You give your life to Jesus. Galatians 2.20 I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith and the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I live a life of faith because Christ died in my place, because Christ loved me, because he died for me and rose again. His life now becomes my life, and I live a life of faith in Jesus. He changes your heart. He takes that old life and kills it and raises you to new life places you in a family. And now, because of what Christ has done, you can look to Him as being supreme. Colossians 1.18. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. Preeminent. So Jesus lays down the law. Hate your family. Hate your life. Take up your cross. Renounce everything that you have. Jesus, this sounds radical. Jesus, this sounds impossible. Jesus, can I do enough of this? How am I even going to do this? That's the point. You can't. That's law. Law says do, 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 and you're supposed to say to the law, I can't, I can't, I can't. What's the gospel say? The gospel says done, done, done. Jesus has done everything for you. He's died on the cross for you. He's risen again for you. He's done everything necessary for you. All you have to do at this point is just receive it by grace alone, through faith alone. What is faith? Faith is believing that this word is true and that God is holy and that Jesus is glorious, and by faith you believe this word to be true, you believe that Jesus died on the cross, you believe he rose again, and then you personally entrust your whole life to Jesus to save you from your sins. You entrust yourself to him. You cast yourself into his arms. You place your faith in him. We could never in a million years do these things enough to get into God's family. You can't hate your family enough to follow Jesus. You can't take up your cross enough to follow Jesus. You can't renounce yourself enough to follow Jesus. You can't do that enough. So something has to happen to you. What you can't do, God gives you the ability to do by His sovereign grace. Every command that Jesus gives you, He gives you the power to fulfill through His Holy Spirit's grace in you. So you don't do these things in order to become in God's family. You do these things because God has already done those in you through sovereign grace. The Holy Spirit has made you alive. The Holy Spirit has done these things in your life. So if you're going to take up your cross and follow Jesus, if you're going to deny yourself, if if you're going to do these radical things that are required of you and you can never do them enough, to earn your salvation, you trust in Jesus and even that ability to trust in Him was something that God gave you as a gift. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together by Christ. By grace you've been saved. Do you know if you're spiritually dead, you cannot hate your family enough, you cannot take your cross up enough, and you cannot renounce yourself enough? You cannot do these things if you're spiritually dead. What has to happen to you? You have to be made alive. And when God makes you alive, He gives you the ability to do those things. Only through His grace. You can't do that without the empowering work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Some of you may be familiar with Greek mythology. King Sisyphus was the ancient ruler of Corinth, and he was a sly king. He thought he could outdo Zeus and trick Zeus, but he wasn't able to trick Zeus. So his punishment, Sisyphus's punishment in the underworld, Hades, was this. For eternity, he would have to roll a boulder up a hill only to have the boulder come back down on him. Roll the boulder up the hill, have it come back down upon him. Wouldn't you love to have that eternity? Roll the boulder, have it come back down. Roll the boulder, come back down. It's like the proverbial hamster on the treadmill. I'm I'm running, but I'm getting nowhere. You and I cannot even begin to do what God requires. It's like rolling the boulder up the hill and having it fall back down. Rolling the boulder up the hill and having it fall back down. In our own strength, in our own power, in our own resources, It's just like rolling the boulder up the hill and having it fall back down. God, when he makes you alive, he gives you that supernatural grace to do what Christ commands. So if you're spiritually dead, you can't take up your cross and follow Jesus. You really even can't follow Jesus. You can't trust in Jesus if you're spiritually dead. God has to make you spiritually alive. When God makes you spiritually alive, he gives you the power to be able to come to Christ in faith. Philippians 2.13, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God's working in you all the time to do what he's calling you to do. Now, there's something interesting in these parables, at least the first parable. It's not how you start, it's how you finish. You can start well, but not finish. Now, what's the spiritual application to that? If you've been truly saved by grace, if you've been made spiritually alive, if God has saved you by grace and made you his child, here's the promise. You will finish. God will make sure you finish. You may not feel like you're finishing, and you may feel like you are weary. But listen to what Paul says in Philippians 1.6. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. If there's genuine salvation, there will be genuine ongoing faith persevering to the end. You'll be able to go through the trials. You'll be able to handle all the stuff. You'll be able to say, I know I I signed up for this, but I didn't expect it to be this crazy, following Jesus. There's some serious stuff here I have to deal with. And Jesus says, I know. It's not up to you to make it to the end. I'm going to get you there. I'm going to get you there. Now, there's a warning in this passage. What does Jesus mean when he talks about salt? Losing its saltiness. Being thrown out. Well, back then, salt was used as a pers- preserving um, agent. Preserved meat It was also used for, for taste, obviously. But, but notice what he says there in verse, in verse uh, 34. Salt is good... But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. Now what's this all about? Okay, here's the point. There are those who may make a public profession of faith and caught up in the excitement, in the frenzy, in the novelty of Jesus. They're excited at the beginning. But then after a while, because they weren't truly saved, and the pressures of life come, and the trials of life come, and they stand up and say, Jesus, I did not sign up for this. I'm out of here. They didn't think it through. They didn't consider the cost. They were caught up in the emotion, they made a quick decision, and then when things got hard, they bailed. They lost their saltiness. It's a person who did not sit down and count the cost, they weren't saved there was no life change they were pretending it's like the third it's like the second soil in the parable of the soils luke 8:13 the ones on the rock are those when they hear the word receive it with joy but these have no root they believe for a while and in a time of testing they fall away they receive the word with joy there's an excitement They're caught up in the moment. They hadn't thought through what Jesus was really calling them to, but but man, that was a great speaker. That was a great worship service. That was a great concert. I got got chills. I maybe even got a little liver shiver. It, It was awesome. But they weren't saved. There was no root. And when the trials of life came, they proved that they were not saved by falling away. Now, what does Jesus say at the very end here? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's funny, Jesus. Don't we all have ears? Can't we all hear? What's Jesus talking about? Supernatural hearing. Basically, Jesus is saying this. If you've been here today and you've been crushed by the law, you've been crushed by this this call to to count the cost and you've sat down and you've thought about it and you truly know what it is that you're getting into and you've cast yourself at Jesus' mercy and you've been made spiritually alive and you know what it means to follow Christ and you've received him by faith, then you've been given supernatural ears to hear. It's supernatural grace. If you've received Christ, if you've received his teachings, if, if, if the Holy Spirit's convicted you, you have ears to hear. The Holy Spirit's given you ears to hear. But some of you may walk out of here this morning and you heard every word that I said and you leave unaffected. You haven't counted the cost, you haven't trusted in Jesus. You'll go on your merry way and never think twice about these serious matters. You have ears but you're not really listening to what Jesus is saying. So it's better for me on the front end of things to say, here's what you're signing up for. Repentance, self-denial, a battle with sin, a battle with the world, a battle with the devil, a life of struggle, a life of persecution, a life of trials. On the front end, I'm going to tell you that's what you're signing up for. Because I don't want to sell you a bill of goods like the prosperity preachers. Just try Jesus on, he'll make your life better. He'll give you everything that your heart desires. That's not necessarily true. Spurgeon said this. Sometimes after you share the gospel, you need to have a person like a wounded deer that seeks the deepest glades of the forest where it may bleed and die alone in profound solitude. You may need to leave this place and go sit alone and think. I know it's not popular in our culture today to think. You may need to go sit alone in uninterrupted time. and He says like a, like a deer that's been, that's been wounded and just kind of die and bleed alone. You may need to be struck with God's word this morning and you need to go sit alone and you just need to think these things through and know exactly what it is that God is calling you to. You see, the blessing of this passage is that you and I never in a million years can fulfill these three obligations. You can't. You can't do it enough. The quantity can't be enough. The intensity can't be enough. You can't do enough. But Jesus did. He's the only one that fulfilled the law. He's the only one that fulfilled the obligations of God. He's the only one that was qualified to die on the cross. He's the only one that rose again. And when He calls you to Himself, He gives you the grace to believe. He gives you the power to come. He opens your eyes to see that He alone is worth it, that He's supreme. You ask the question, well, Pastor Sean, if you tell people up front that they're signing up for trials and struggles and persecutions and and they're, they're signing up for all this stuff, why would anybody ever want to come? Here's my simple answer. Nobody would ever want to come unless God does a work in their heart to grant them the ability to come. Because Jesus is more glorious than anything that we'd ever have to suffer in this life. He's the pearl of great price. He's the field that we go and we sell everything to get. And so if you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ for salvation, I'm going to tell you to do what Jesus did. Sit down. Take some time. Count the cost. Think it through. Deliberate. Ruminate. Meditate. Don't just make a quick decision because you were excited about it. The things that you experienced here this morning. Sit down and count the cost. So let me ask you to bow your heads this morning as we go into a time of prayer. I don't know what is going on in the hearts and minds of people this morning, but I do trust, Holy Spirit, that you're at work. And so... I just pray that this word that was preached this morning falls on good soil and that there's a harvest, that there's growth, that there's obedience, and that your will would be done. Other than that, Lord, I can't do anything. All I can do is pray. You have to do the work. So Holy Spirit, would you do a work in people's hearts this morning as we submit ourselves to you as our great King and Savior. And it's in your name that we pray these things, Lord. Amen.